0: You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on the show Nick Averwater. Nick is a VP of sales at Amro Music Stores based out of Memphis, Tennessee, where he hosts the podcast, After Hours. In his spare time, he is also a husband and recently father of two, and I think we can officially say congratulations on that. Uh, Thanks, the reason man. we have Nick on the show is to bring us back to the basics. He recently wrote a book, Did I Miss This in Class?, where he details the 101 of everything finance. Sometimes in investing, we miss the basic. I'm hoping, Nick, that you can bring us back down to the basics
1: and teach us everything we missed in class. So, With that, Nick, welcome to the show. Matt, thanks for having me on, man. It's good to see you and excited to talk investing and ideas for a little bit.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Nick, we like to start with the hard questions here. What's your favorite ice cream?
1: I'm a classic Rocky Road guy. It's just a little nostalgia factor. My mom always got it growing up, so I did too. And ever since then, a classic Rocky Road at Baskin Robbins has just been a little piece of history for me. Okay. Bowl or cone? Usually the bowl, and again, I think it starts out when I was a kid. I'm a little bit of a messy eater, so probably best that I keep it all (laughs) contained and don't drip out the big sugar cones, but I have always had a sweet tooth my whole life, so whenever there's an opportunity, I don't say no.
0: I don't see what's wrong with spilling a little bit on your shirt, licking it for later, you know, just- That's exactly right.
1: Saving some for later. So tell our listeners, what's your scoop? What do you do today? Yeah, so I'm presently the vice president at Amro Music predominantly work on the sales and customer side of the business. So we specialize in serving the needs of school bands and orchestras across six states. So a lot of people don't know that we're here unless your child has played in the band or the orchestra. We're the company that comes in and says, hey, you can either buy a saxophone for $2,000 or I'll rent you one for $40 a month. And at the end of the year, you can convert it into a sale. And we've got the repair services and everything like that. So that's really what we specialize in. And then On the side, you know, we just got through, or I'm hoping we're getting through this pandemic and the quarantine time. And so I sat down and wrote a book, Did I Miss This Class? And something I know we'll talk about, a little side passion and hobby of mine has always been personal finance and investing. And so excited to try my hand as an author.
0: There you go. So real quick on the music stores, you
1: cover just primarily the Southeast or where else do you go? You know, we really specialize in calling on these smaller rural communities across uh, the Mid-South based around Memphis. So we have reps in Arkansas and Kentucky, Nashville, Tennessee, Mississippi, all over the place that we service and call on. But we're based here out of Memphis, Tennessee. But it takes about seven hours to drive north to south and east to west across our territories. Were you in band in college? I don't even know. Do you play I, any instruments? I, you know, I played in high school. I was not a very good musician and I did not <laughs> play in college. So I get that all the time. Wow. Like you work at a music store, your family owns this music store. That's a hundred years old. You must play everything and really don't. For me, it's all about the business side, which is a blessing and a curse, but no, don't actively play to this day, but work around them every day. I make this joke frequently that if you see me swing a hammer, you'd never know if I was
0: left-handed or right-handed. And it's the same with dancing. You would never know that I didn't know what a beat was or anything like that. So I don't venture in the music. I actually, after I graduated from college, I moved down to Nashville. And I lived right there on music row where all the labels are and yeah. all that kind of stuff. I played guitar at that time. Not very well, but I played guitar. And I remember I lived in this like duplex where I could hear my neighbor a lot. And he also played and he sung too. And I, one time I heard him just one time. And I was like, that's it. Hung up the guitar,
1: never played it yeah, again. Just not, was, not doing that. No, nope. Nashville is a tough town to learn to play guitar. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's I like a lot say- of
1: fine musicians. People in Nashville, when you go to the karaoke
0: bars, they're like auditioning. They're really trying to get noticed.
1: Right. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So tell us, why did you decide to write the book? What made you kind of
1: want to write the book? A couple of things kind of converged to actually put pen to paper. So the book has always been on the back of my mind. All the way back into college, I remember sharing it with, you know, now my wife and my mentor at the time at UT and saying, Man, I got this crazy idea for a book. I was always an avid reader so you know on my bookshelf in high school and college I mean you found Rich Dad Poor Dad and Dave Ramsey and Index Investing for Dummies and I was always kind of passionate about that. So in grad school I did my MBA in finance and you know most of my classmates were going you know the CFP or the CFA route really going you know the Wall Street type route and then here I was prepping to get into the family business. So was still really exposed to that stuff. And then I remember we got out and there was a lot of really fundamental questions, you know, like, okay, I knew what a 401K is, or was at the time, I could do volatility analysis on a stock, but I really didn't know how much I should be investing, or what an ETF was and all of that stuff. And I remember thinking, man, I thought I did a lot in college. I thought I did the right things, and yet there were still some really fundamental things. you know, what's an insurance? premium and deductible. I don't have a clue. And so I had to live about 10 years of my life and we bought a home, a short sell and a flip and had a family. And so I started jotting all these notes down and then it took the quarantine, the quiet time to actually say, it's time to write your book. You've had enough experiences and take a stab. So here we are.
0: Yeah. I was just at a workshop this weekend where
1: we got down into the weeds on
0: insurance and like oh, uh, writers and paid up additions and all this kind of stuff. And It's funny because like I understand that part, but you're absolutely right. They teach you none of that in school, none of that in college. In fact, you day one on college campus, you can sign up for a credit card before you even know what credit is. So it's pretty dangerous, I think. I love that you started your book with credit because I think that's the foundation of any financial success. What
1: did you learn from researching the book about credit specifically? I started with that chapter because I felt like there was this great sense of urgency to get credit under control because as you mentioned, a ton of college kids are graduating and they don't understand their credit. They don't understand the implications of their decision. And it takes so much time to establish that good credit. So that's why I really wanted to tackle some fundamental principles like credit, like compounding interest and budgeting. I feel like when you grasp those, then we can talk about the other topics, buying a house, investing, things like that. So I started with that because I felt like it was really fundamental. And it's interesting in my position I view a lot of credit reports as part of my job, and so I see a lot of the mistakes that people make and maybe they not they don't realize and And I've had a lot of conversations with customers where I come back and and have to discuss their credit with them and there's always a surprise, and so I, I felt like for me it was an opportunity to to get in and and just lay the foundation for any uh, prospective readers about what it is and You know, really just reiterated the point, the timely payments, even if you can't make your whole payment, the timely payments are so important and just having a plan and don't overspend you can start on the right foot. And really it leads into the interest thing. I mean, when you start seeing the differences in interest rates based on your credit score and then how much it costs you, could be six figures later over a 30 year term loan. And you're going, oh man, those late payments really costed me a lot of money. So just things like that that even to me background in finance. When I started running those charts and graphs and seeing the differences over the term of a loan that you can pay, even for me, it was eye-opening. Is there any advice you would give to somebody that maybe is coming out of college,
0: has never had a credit card, just starting off on their journey to kind of build and establish
1: good credit? This is going to be very contradictory to Dave Ramsey, and we can talk about his philosophies. And, and We don't have enough
0: I'll, time to talk about we his We don't have to talk about Dave Ramsey.
1: I love his stuff, but I do think one of the things that he and I don't always agree on is I do think it's important for young people to start establishing credit early. And so there's a couple of ways that you can do that. You know, in college, I took out a simple credit card. I think it was like a thousand dollar credit limit on it. And I put groceries and gas on it, paid it off on the weekends, never got behind. So when I graduated, I had four years of payment history. So that was one thing. And I remember when I was 16, my mom made me an authorized user on her card. And I really didn't appreciate that until I graduated. And now I had six years of credit history on hers. And so I think there's some little things you can do if you're proactive. Now, honestly, you only want to do that if you can make on-time payments. The goal is to establish good credit, not bad. But I do think establishing good credit is something we need to start on early and very intentionally.
0: Yeah. The one thing I picked out from that too is the gas and groceries, right? You didn't say Banana Republic card or JCPenney cards. You didn't go put a flat screen TV on there or anything like that. I mean, the basic necessities and then having somebody with great credit add you as an authorized user if you have that option is fantastic. I want to dig just a little bit into the Dave Ramsey thing because I'm from Nashville. You live in Memphis. Being in Tennessee, always hear about his Dave Ramsey. And look, I think his message needs to be heard from a lot of people, but I I think we both fundamentally disagree on his view on debt specifically. And I think there's good debt and bad debt. Do you have
1: any just kind of tips and tricks around good debt and what is bad debt and how we can think about that? I couldn't agree. And this is really, you know, a, a finance 301 type conversation. I mean, if you're a college graduate and you don't have a business or a finance background and you got hundred grand in debt, take Dave Ramsey's course because you'll get out. I mean, it's it, right. it very structured and I love it. But there's some things that I don't always agree with. I mean, right now, mortgage rates are 3% and the market's been going crazy over the last year. So you would have done a lot better if taking any excess cash and dumping it into the market in some sort of ETF or another investment as opposed to paying down your debt. I mean, you can just get a higher rate of return. So I do think that there's good debt and there's bad debt. and, And that's really a higher level conversation. But of course, the bad debt. I mean, anytime you're paying interest rates on credit cards, I mean, ouch, I mean, that stuff hurts or any time, you know, late fees. I mean, that's another debt when you're paying seven or eight or $12 in late fees on a $50 bill. I mean, you want to talk about what your APR on that is. It's high. So things like that, you know, you got to get that stuff under control. And then we can have the 301 conversation of, you know, comparing a mortgage debt versus investing it, things like that.
0: Yeah. I mentioned the financial workshop I was at. We did something called lost opportunity cost. And one thing that he did was kind of run us through examples of like, if you've just missed a $12 late fee, for instance, that's lost opportunity cost of like $400 in 30 years, which doesn't seem like a lot, right? But if you compound that and you keep doing that over and over, and then you start doing it on separate credit cards, it starts to add up to real money there. So credit is kind of the foundation of everything we do in investing. I think the next part of your story really went into kind of the budgeting aspect. You have a story in there in the book around taking some long car trips and being able to save some money on some expenses and some bills. Can you give us
1: some highlights on that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in the budgeting section, we discuss, you know, low, medium, and high priority. The low priority expenses are the things that add to your lifestyle, their shopping, their hobbies, they're typically things that are easy to remove. You know, the medium ones are stuff that might be uncomfortable to remove from the budget. Things like internet or our cable, something like that. We don't really want to give it up, but if we had to, we could. And then our high priorities, stuff that were contractually obligated, student loans, mortgage, car notes, things like that. So one of the things I pointed out is that There's some expenses that tend to creep on us. The ones that come to mind in my life are like my lawn service, my insurance, my internet, my cable, all of that stuff. They slowly increase. And if you've ever used like app Mint where you can load all your expenses in, I type in Comcast and you can see it. It'll be the same and then it starts ticking up and then I'll call them and it'll come back down. So one of the things that I do is I've got a little script in there that I've used for years now. And whenever I notice my expenses increasing, I I simply call these people up and say, Hey, you know, I'll use Comcast as an example. I'm a very happy customer, but I've noticed that my price has increased and it's now outside of our budget. I'm not interested in shopping or looking around, but we can no longer continue to pay this increased price. Is there anything you can do to help me? Matt, every single time, except once, they have said, oh, absolutely, Mr. Water, we'll lower your price. And I kid you not, I'm paying less now for my internet than I was four years ago. I mean, there have been times that they just lower it than what it was before. So just being intentional in those expenses. And, you know, I usually do it once a year and, you know, it's not uncommon for me to find 200 or $300 and just expenses that just creep. And you talk about opportunity costs, man, 300 bucks a month, that's big money down the road. And so I try to watch that stuff pretty diligently with that script. That's huge. And I'm
0: smiling ear to ear right now because I literally just got my internet bill. My internet bill is 19 Great service, great everything, $19.99, super cheap, right? But the other day it went up to like $22, not a whole lot, but $3 times 12 is $36. And then what is that moss opportunity cost and things like that? So when I read that section of the book, it kind of made me smile because it hit me at the right time. And you're right. You've got so many of
1: those expenses in your life. How much money could you be saving there? I try to watch that. And I'm a big fan of the app Mint by Intuit and you can go in and set alerts. And so I get an email alert anytime I get an increase on a fixed bill. And uh, I really like that, and it kind of helps me to stay diligent and watching it. So I try to watch that stuff pretty closely. That's the
0: next part I wanna get into is budgeting and using Mint. I personally use personal capital,
1: but Mint is also a phenomenal tool as well. How do you use Mint? I don't recommend Mint if you're early in the budgeting process. Because there is this delay between when you actually swipe your credit card for something and when it actually appears in Mint. You know, if you swipe it on a Friday night, non banking hours, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, post Monday on your credit card, it doesn't post Tuesday until Mint. So I don't love it if you're new in budgeting, but for me, it's a great way just to keep track of all of it. Of course, by now we still budget at our house, but I've got a pretty good feel. And there are budget categories that I can keep up with some meals and entertainment, household, home repairs. I do have categories set up and it helps me to see how our spending is compared to budget. And so I do keep an eye on that. But again, if you're new in the budgeting game, I think the most accountable system is Dave Ramsey's envelope system. And my wife and I did that for many years to truly hold yourself accountable until you find a rhythm uh, to your budgeting process.
0: Yeah. I think budgeting is more of a spending plan than a budget. Like Budget has a four-letter connotation to it. Somebody said the other day that really what you're doing when you're budgeting. If you invest that money, you're creating a spending plan for the future. Do you go in and categorize
1: it or anything like that? Or how does Mint do that? You can go in and set categories based on vendor or spending type or anything like that. So you can get very detailed. Again, I don't have it set up to that level now, just because I have a pretty good rhythm of expenses and things that are coming and going.
0: You mentioned Dave Ramsey's envelope systems. I've heard people do that in the digital sphere as well. So they'll basically put all their money into a checking account and then they'll run like a suite where the money will go pull it out of the checking account and pull it into separate accounts. Do you do
1: anything like that? I have heard of people that do that. And that certainly seems to be the most up to date way of doing something like that. And that's perfectly fine. I think the biggest thing, like you said, it's just creating spending habits is we've just got to create some level of accountability so that when we're not feeling maybe as uh, self-reliable as we should the systems and the processes are in place to hold us accountable to them. Because again, like you mentioned, it's all about setting those long-term opportunity costs, setting ourselves up for success long-term. And I think that's something that you, me, and Dave Ramsey would all agree on is that if we take control of our spending now, if we do it right now, it opens up a litany of opportunities later in life. And that's really what we're all working towards hundred percent. So from the
0: getting your credit foundation, making sure that you're tracking your spending and cutting your expenses wherever you can, you went into buying a house.
1: Did you buy your house short sale or foreclosure? It was a short sale that we bought. So it was heading in foreclosure. It was vacated, but we had to negotiate with both the bank and the owners of the property to, to get everybody's blessing. So tell our listeners, first off, what a short sale is. For our house, it was one that the house was upside down. And so the previous owners, the house was extremely neglected. And so the value of the house was substantially below with the outstanding mortgage balance was on the particular property. And so the previous owners had left, but the house had not yet been repossessed by the bank. We're able, through our agent, able to go in and make an offer to both the banks. So they did take a loss on that particular property. And then the previous owners as well agreed to sell. And so that was our first house. Let me tell you, you know, for our listeners, it was something else, man. We filled a construction dumpster, not one of those little ones A semi-truck one the first day with belongings and rotten carpet. There was a tree growing in a hot tub. It was something else in this particular house. And so for us, that was our first foray into real estate investing and learned a lot through that process. Did you have to pay extra for the tree? We paid extra to have the tree removed (laughs) along with about eight others. It was something else. I didn't know the previous buyers, but there was Something that indicated that there was either an addiction or some sort of mental instability. You would never get a house like that, you know, living in the house with the right state of mind. So something was going on. So how did you find the short sale? It was 2013. It was a little different than it is now uh, in terms of inventory level. So it had been sitting on the market for some time. It was posted on Zillow, but not for sale. And so we had to locate, we worked with our agent and had to locate all of the appropriate parties. In the transaction, it does take some time. You know, I think we started negotiating in October and didn't close until mid to late January the following year. So it takes some time to jump through all of those hoops. Yeah. Now, did you live in it and flip it or do you still live in it today? We sold the house last year. So we bought it and lived in it for six years. So it was both our primary residence and a flip, yeah. but we always bought it with the intention of for investment purposes. So it was a great house. We absolutely loved it, but we outgrew it uh, when our second daughter close to arriving and seemed like the right time. The market is still hot, but was particularly hot at the time. And we're able to put it on the market and got offers pretty quick on it. Do you care to go through the numbers on that? And we can cut it if you don't. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So we bought the house for $110,000. We refied it for 180, did a cash out refi. And that really allowed, that was a power move for us, we worked real hard, but that allowed us to pay off all of our student loans in both cars. So we essentially consolidated all of our debt into a tax deductible low mortgage rate and then sold the house this time last year for 269. So wow. it ended up being a pretty good flip for us. So you, we had a you, lot of cash and time in it, though. Do you have any idea how much it costs you to kind of do all the renovations? My dad asked me to keep up with that. I didn't because we did some things that had it been truly investment purposes. Like, you know, we put quartz in the kitchen, real hardwood. We did some things that were for our enjoyment while we lived there. I didn't keep up with everything that we put into it. But like I said, we did some things that had it been true investment. We probably would not have done those things. I
0: mean, that's still a pretty good return. 160K, 150K in equity in what? Seven years
1: ish, almost doubling your money in seven years ish. Yeah, so it allowed us to make a nice down payment on our next home and continue to have a house that grew with our family.
0: Nice. Now, and since you lived in it for two years, capital gains instead of ordinary income, I think you were able to write off those taxes, right?
1: Since it was our primary residence and we lived there for five or six years, we were good to go on all of that. So do you own any other real estate? Uh, My cousin and I are business partners in a commercial building as well. So have gotten my feet wet on the, the commercial building side. Nice. Is that a multifamily or is it just a retail or? This is office, general office. So the company I work at, AMRO Music, the building behind us, uh, was put on the market about four years ago and we purchased it. And AMRO Music is a partial tenant in the space. And then we have another company that's a a partial tenant. So I do have a little bit of the landlord to do items on my list in terms of filing, you know, the franchise and excise taxes and, you know, managing payments and all of that stuff. So yeah. Yeah. I enjoy that. That's awesome. All right. So we've got a credit. We've
0: established a budget. Maybe we go buy a house and flip it and do a fantastic job like you did. Talk to us about the other investment accounts out there. So I know you go a little bit into IRAs, 401ks.
1: What's the difference between all of those and how do you view those? You know, the big one is 401k. A lot of people are familiar with that, but a lot of young people are not participating. And it's interesting for me, I actually see the stats as I'm the trustee for our company's 401k. So you know, I get to see all of those stats. And I mean, for a lot of people, that's free money. And you talk about, you know, an ROI. And if your employer has a match, the opportunity to double your money on day one before the compounding interest of skip set in. I mean, again, if if you're getting a 7% average market return, it would take us 10 years to get there. You just skipped 10 years. So I think that stuff, you know, for any young listeners, that stuff is so important for us to grab onto, particularly when we have time to our advantage. There's also this thing called the hedonic treadmill,
0: where basically if you don't do that early, then your cost of living is going to rise because you're going to see that money in your account. It makes it harder to lower your standard of living afterwards. So I like to tell people, put as much of that money as you can out of your grasp so you're not
1: spending it. And I think you're exactly right. You know, I kind of referred to it as the hamster wheel in the book is that, and I've even fallen into this fallacy of, you know, all my financial problems would go away if I just made a little bit more money. And the reality is, is that's not true. We just move from a smaller hamster wheel to a bigger one, but we still are running on the hamster wheel. And so anytime you get a raise or something like that, I think it's a great time to reevaluate your spending and say, okay, I've got a raise for this amount. Can I continue to live on what I was living on and put this money towards my 401k or towards my debt? Your pocketbook doesn't really feel it, but again, you're able to snowball into your debt and pay that stuff down faster without changing your lifestyle. When somebody's looking at their
0: 401k, usually there's a bunch of different options. There's mutual funds, there's ETFs, there's bonds, there's anything like that. What have you found successful
1: from investing in your 401k? I'm just going to throw a disclaimer. I'm not a CFP or a CFA. So this is just educational purposes, not investment advice that Matt and I are discussing on today's podcast. So I'm a very traditionalist. I'm an ETF kind of guy. I'm a Vanguard kind of guy. So I tend to play the long game. I got that from my dad. And so for me, I really gravitate towards those low cost, low expense index funds. I have a little, little bit that I do some individual selections. But in terms of long term, for me personally, like with my daughter's 529s accounts and you know, my personal you know, retirement, for me, it's all about low cost, low expense. You know, when it comes to the stock market, if you can just be average for a long enough period of time, you're usually doing pretty good and manage your expenses. And so that's typically the approach that I take.
0: Yeah, it's not timing the market, it's time in the market. And I forget all the stats out there, but there's something like if you look at the past 10 years and you missed 30 best days, then you would actually be negative on your return. So just set it, forget it, let it grow, don't touch it for a couple of years.
1: Yeah, I try to very much take that approach. You know, I think I rebalance once a year. And I'm sure, you know, the analysts and the CFPs are kind of cringing, but, you know, for me, it's just all about patience and longevity. And so really try to play up to that in my investment selections.
0: You mentioned Vanguard. Vanguard's really known for low cost ETF funds. Um, If my 401k doesn't have Vanguard, is there another way to kind of look at
1: the selection options they have so I can pick the best ones? Usually the first thing I go look at is those expense ratios. A lot of times. You know, those are the first things that I'm after. I'll nerd out a little bit and get into the waiting. You know, I try not to be too tech heavy because it seems like almost all indexes right now are super tech heavy. You can get into that. But, you know, if there's any young investors or or new, I mean, you know, the rise of these uh, target date funds, I think are a great way to get your feet wet and really put it on autopilot to a certain extent where they monitor the investments and they transition them from an aggressive to a passive management style the closer you get to your horizon. So, I think it just depends on your particular structure. I'm sure Fidelity, I'm not a Fidelity customer, but I'm sure they offer a plethora of ETFs and options.
0: Yeah, I know we were talking about crypto and NFTs and all that kind of stuff before. And if you're out there and you're into that kind of stuff, maybe there are different options for you. Most listeners out there, they just want to know that they're going to have enough money if they put it in the right place and they're not going to go to zero. Most of these options, like you said, from a target date fund, they do a good job of just balancing out. They'll give you a little bit of tech. They'll give you a little bit of fixed annuities and things like that. And they'll give you a little bit of everything in between. So I love that. The last part of your book goes into insurance. And this is something that I don't think I still have a grasp on and I'm still learning about is just all the different insurances out there. And look, the reason why no one likes buying insurance is because you're predicting that a bad event will happen. And unfortunately, I think we've all been through enough life here recently to understand that bad events will happen and you need to protect yourself against those. Give us a broad range overview of
1: what types of insurance are there out there? What should I be looking at? I'm much like you, Matt. Even I have to find myself studying. You know, when we did our health care renewal at the turn of the year, I had to find myself really sitting down studying all of this stuff because it's just not something you do every day. And you don't want to wait until an emergency to start asking the question, am I covered? Because it's probably too late. At that point, it's just a gamble. Did I get the coverage or not? You know, just like in anything, there's various levels, you know, whether you're shopping car or life or auto, home, you know, whatever it is, I think it's so important, but it is a little bit of a bet whether or not these items are going to happen. But I do think it's so important. You know, I'll, I'll share a personal story. You know, when we had my first daughter, we went in and had all of these plans For how the delivery was going to go. And we were on a high deductible plan at the time. And I thought I had everything budgeted exactly right. Well, about 10 hours into later labor, the doctor said, Hey, we're going to do a C-section. You know, 15 minutes later, my wife's on the operating table and everybody was born and they were healthy, but the bills came in. And all of a sudden, we had multiple nights stay at the hospital and we had operating expenses and all of these things. And my healthcare plan got maxed out real quick. And what I thought was going to happen, something else happened. And so that was my wake-up call that here I was, I thought I was planning and life had other plans. And so for me, that was really my wake-up call to reevaluate our home insurance, our healthcare insurance, everything, and look at it through a new lens of the what ifs. Because when you're 23, 24, 28, you don't think, oh, that won't happen to me. But life has a funny way of humbling us and catching up with us really quick. 100%. And I think one thing that I don't
0: remember if you touched on in your book, though, is disability insurance. Disability insurance is insurance that says, if I get disabled and I'm unable to perform my job duties, then I'm going to have a steady stream of income coming into me until I'm 65 or until the rest of my life. And one thing you should know as a young person or any person, your number one source of income is your ability to show up at a job and do it. And if that gets taken away from you, most people, including myself, probably don't have enough side income or passive income coming in to continue to maintain the level of lifestyle they do. So I would encourage everyone out there. It's super, super cheap to look at protecting your number one asset and your ability to show up in
1: income. One of the things the book, even writing the book really reiterated for me is the importance of the team that we surround ourselves with. So whether, you know, that's having an insurance agent that that shoots you straight and that you can really trust, or whether you have just a, a financial planner that can help you get set up and just started navigating these questions. And like I know where I work, our financial planner comes with our 401k service. You can sit down with him at any point. And so it doesn't necessarily mean we're paying for these people. And we have a broker that'll come in and sit down with us through all of our healthcare. And both those are free to us. So it doesn't mean necessarily that you're paying for these premium expenses or these premium services, but it's so important that we surround ourselves with a team that can help guide us through it because it's unrealistic to expect any one individual or an adult to know how to guide and navigate all of this stuff at an expert level all of the time. So that's why having those experts, even in real estate, our real estate agent, we bought our house last year was so vitally important. In fact, it was Tyler and Mietha Tarpley, who I know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Tyler Tarpley and They were just so wonderful guiding us through the process. And a lot of the things that I wrote about in the book was thanks to the wisdom and the guidance that the two of them provided my wife and I. And so having a tribe of people that can guide you through these are so, so important. That's a big
0: life best practice I would throw out there as well, is that you just can't operate in this complex world that we live in today, you have to go find good people that understand your blind spots, whether it's because you don't know about it or because frankly, you don't care to learn about it kind of thing. You have to have the right team around you. So we went through crediting, budgeting, buying a house, your bang up flip job and that I'm super jealous about insurance.
1: Anything we missed in the book that you feel like we need to cover or highlight here? I think that about sums it up. You know, again, it was just, try to capture everything that I wish I knew when I graduated college, you know quite frankly and, and dive into all of those topics. We do spend a lot of time talking about compounding interest. Uh, of course for you, that's a topic you're very comfortable with, but you don't come from a finance background, the idea that first year I earn this much and then my interest compounds on interest each year and the trend line that that creates. And so I really try to take some time, to lay that out for the people that maybe don't have a financial background. Because I do think if you don't understand compounding interest, it's hard to understand retirement. But buddy, once you do, it creates that sense of urgency that we start saving and investing as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, I'm looking for an analogy to teach somebody that doesn't know about compounding interest about compounding interest because it's the most powerful force, I think, in the world. Those who don't know it, pay it. Those who do know it, earn it. And it could be a number of different things from the way transactions happen, the nuclear bombs to an avalanche, right? I mean, no single snowflake is responsible for an avalanche, but it builds up over time until it falls down the hill. And it's one of the most deadly forces out there. So we'll have to chat offline. If you have a good analogy for compounding, I'm, I'm looking for it right
1: now. You're sound pretty good compared to what I had in mind, man. That was great.
0: <laughs> so I'm going to go into the last segment of the show here. It's the five same questions we ask everyone. The first one is what is your
1: favorite book or what's a book that you've read recently that's had a big impact on you? For just me personally, I think the book 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by uh, John Maxwell was real opening. I remember reading it in college. I remember exactly where I was. And I think that's where it dawned on me that leadership is, it's a skill, it's a muscle that we can all develop. And uh, I think it was, it was for me, you know, that's one of my other passions is just leadership, leadership development. And if I ever write another book, I might take a stab at that, but I'm a big believer that leadership is all of our glass ceilings. You know, eventually our job performance is determined by our our ability to lead those around us. Uh, And so I remember that book really started to expose me to those thought process, to that thought process. And then the other one is Simon Simic, Uh, Start With Why. Uh, Great book that just brings a lot of clarity, not just to work, but why we do all of the things we do outside of work. And it, it really helped give me a lens to say, hey, if all of these things coming at me don't answer my why, either at home or in the office, I need to quit doing them. They're not feeding me or our organization's purpose. And so uh, that book was really impactful for me to uh, to give me a lens on how I should be spending my time. I could not have said two better books. It's one of my passions right now
0: to go help and enable leaders of the future because One of the things that frustrated me the most in 2020 is that everyone in a leadership position thought about themselves first. They thought about their reelection campaigns. They thought about what's good for them and all that kind of stuff and pushed the decisions away because they didn't want to be held accountable to a good decision or a bad decision. And I want to challenge you on the compounding front to go uh, old John Maxwell quote. It's not when you get there. It's how far you can go. To go ahead and start that journey now, because I think our generation desperately needs people like you leading people and, and talking about leadership. The second thing is, uh, what's something I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is correlated to the
1: things that you do every single day? What is something that you do every single day? I really had to sit and think about this question because I think it's evolved over the years. So, you know, when we bought that foreclosure, that short sale, my wife and I didn't have any kids. For me, it was all about how many boxes did I check that day? You know, how many projects did I get done? And it was probably the right mentality when I was young, but man, it was draining. And I realized I'm not really feeding myself. I'm not really feeding, pouring into my marriage, you know. And, and so I think part of the success of the house that we had was that I probably didn't spend as much time doing other things that I should have been doing. I was very focused on the house, which you're in your early 20s, you don't have kids. That's probably okay. And my wife and I did a lot of those projects together. But you know, now there's a couple of things that I, a couple of boxes I try to check every day. So the first is, is just, have I improved myself today? That can be mentally, spiritually, physically. Have I exercised? Have I taken a few moments to myself? Have I read a book? Have I thought about what's going on in my life? So that's my first question is, Very broad. Have I improved myself today? Um, The second one is, have I improved our family surrounding? You know, whether that's a little project around the house, have I done something to help my wife? Have I just cleaned up the space so it's more enjoyable? And then the third is, have I spent meaningful time with my wife and daughters? And so those are really the three questions, you know, have I developed myself? Have I improved our surroundings? And have I spent meaningful time with my wife and daughters? And for me, if I check those three boxes each day, it's been a pretty good day. Love it. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? One was really simple. I'll share with you two here. They both came from my dad and I'm very fortunate. My dad and I still work together. He's our chairman at Amro Music. And so I, I get to spend a lot of time with him. So he's really mentored me. And a lot of the lessons that you see in these books are a reflection of my dad. And so uh, the first one was right before we had our first daughter, he told me and I was worked up about the house and all of this other stuff. And he said, everything that you think is important right now, you're going to realize it's not that important. And man, he was right. I think my priorities shifted and we kind of talked about that. But looking back on that piece of advice, I'm not sure anything has been more right, Cliff said to me. And then the second one is, I remember we were visiting this other music store. My dad and I love to go visit other music stores outside of our area and just see if we can learn. We went in this music store and and it was was very nice, but frankly, it was pretty evident, you know, just walking in the store that we were probably a better run company. And I was young and big headed and, and egotistical. So, I really wasn't interested in learning anything. But my dad, he was with me, super inquisitive. And we went back to the accounting office and he ended up spending like an hour talking to this lady in their accounting office. He dove in and dove in and got deeper and deeper and deeper and realized that they were doing something slightly different than we were doing and they were having it with better success than we were having. And he left. And, you know, I remember just thinking, you know, here I was thinking there's nothing we could learn. We're the better company, we're the bigger company, we're the older company. But my dad was sitting there and and he spent time with this one individual and took something back that we implemented in our company and made us better that we still do to this day. And for me, that was really a learning moment that, you know, doesn't matter who we're talking to. We can always learn from those around us. You know, that was really a humbling moment for me. I was young and egotistical and just watching him do that really was a good reminder that I still carry to this day.
0: I was in a training one time where this guy, you know, got asked a question and he answered it right on the spot, Johnny on the spot, fantastic answer. He goes, I'm impressed by no one started walking towards the board and he turned around and I'm impressed by everyone. And that really stuck to me as that's a good mentality to have that somebody, no matter where they are, where they come from, can teach you something. Just know that you should be inquisitive enough to try to learn and maybe you'll learn something. Yeah, if we um, just shut up and listen, we usually learn something. Yeah, man, I want to go into that topic so bad right now, but <laughs> we'll, we'll take that one offline. What's the thing you're most proud of in your
1: life? And, you know, right now we're, I think, at the tail end of this pandemic. Here's hoping. And for me, looking back, I mean, it's been almost a year to the day now that this whole pandemic and you know, our business model was pretty impacted by this. I mean, we're very involved with schools and, and to see the way our team uh, evolved, was something I was really proud of. I would never wish this pandemic upon anybody ever again, the terrible things and the loss of life. But I see the company that entered the pandemic and I see the company that exited the pandemic. And I can't but help but feel proud for our incredible team here at Amro Music. And so that's certainly something that I'm proud of. The book has been a lot of fun. Writing's not a strength of mine. I still don't think it's very well written, but wanted to take a stab at it. So that's been good. But again, hands down being a dad, you know, my daughter's four and she's getting to a point in her life where she knows the difference between right and wrong. And when you see your kids doing the right thing, you know, they share, they be nice to others. They use their manners. They make friends. That's a little different type of pride when hopefully, you know, you're creating a human being that. That's going to be a positive influence on this earth.
0: Yeah. The one thing I'll say to that is if kids were stocks, I would bet all my money on your kids because knowing the person you are, they're going to turn out just fine. If not way above fine. It's unpredictable when they're four
1: too. So there's a (laughs) lot of days where you're like, who are you? What are you doing in my house? You little monster. (laughs) You're a monster. That's right. But most days it's a wonderful adventure.
0: Well, when that happens, you can just be like, see, that's what you got from your mother. That's exactly right. <laughs> she says the same about me. <laughs> the last one here is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Yeah,
1: for me, it would be my great grandfather, Mill Averwater, who founded Amro Music. It's pretty cool to work in your family's business, to be, you know, a fourth generation owner. But it's also a little different to think about that. Hey, there was an individual who founded this company, who's part of my family that I've never met. And so you feel this connection to this individual, but also know that I never had a conversation with this individual, but what he started, I'm continuing to live on to this day. So for me, just the opportunity to sit down and introduce myself and show him around the Amaro music would be crazy, you know? We have him on recording, Matt, talking about surviving the Great Depression by trading milk and eggs, having to forcefully relocate. I'm pretty sure they called that eviction throughout (laughs) the Depression. And so we have him talking about that. And now to see the company that services six states and one of the largest in our industry now would just be really cool to have that conversation with him.
0: Yeah. As you're going through that, I'm just thinking in Memphis too, right? I mean, think of the history of Memphis, not only the Great Depression, but segregation desegregation, all the music stars that went through there from B.B. King to all the R&B singers and all that kind of stuff. That would be super interesting to see the kind of people that have known and touched your brand would be cool. We've got to, in fact, here, I'll show
1: you this. Our listeners can't, they can't see this, but this is a receipt from Elvis Presley and uh, where he shopped at our music store and he bought a used Gibson guitar for $165, a case for $15. A used Epiphone amplifier. And then this is what's pretty cool a guitar chart, a chord book, and a learn to play guitar book. So this was at the very beginning of his career. And so the address is 3764 Highway 51, which is now Elvis Presley Boulevard, which is Graceland. And so he was just starting out in 1967. So, anyway, you know, when you get to work with people like this that have come into your store before, you know, John Mayer and B.B. King, and I mean, that's pretty cool. That That is super cool. We get to work with that. Yeah, that is super cool.
0: Well, Nick, fantastic conversation. I think sometimes when we get involved in investing conversations, we're talking at the high level and speeds and feeds and numbers and crunching everything. And sometimes we forget about the basics. Your book is a fantastic resource for those that are looking to get back to the basics. And I would encourage everybody to read it. Leave our listeners
1: where they can find the book and where they can find out more about you. Absolutely. So the book is going to be available on Amazon here. We're launching on the 20th. So we're right on the cusp of this thing. Uh, And again, it's called Did I Miss This Class? So it'll be available on both Kindle and in printback version. So we're excited to launch that. And if you have any great feedback, great ideas, if you love the book, feel free to leave a review. If you don't love the book, or if there's something maybe I missed, or you have a different experience, shoot me an email. I'd love to have a conversation. Of course, the book is a reflection of my experiences, but it's not necessarily a reflection of your reality. So I'd love to hear others' perspectives and what they learn from the book. What's the email address? Nick Averwater, my first and last name, A-V-E-R-W-A-T-E-R at gmail.com. And if you buy a copy of the book, you can find my email on the very last page. I invite you to email me and I'd love to hear from anybody that that reads it. That's awesome. Well, Nick, thanks for your time. I look forward to coming to
0: Memphis and seeing that receipt because that's just an incredible story. Please come down, Matt. We'd love to have you. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean
1: the world to me if you would like, subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.